Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our special American Soccer History session on the 2023 Women's World Cup. We have the pleasure of speaking today with two of our SASH members who are currently at the tournament. Jen Cooper, the editor and publisher of Keeper Notes, has been involved in various areas of Houston soccer since the 1990s. She also works as a researcher and statistician, including for Fox Sports at this year's World Cup and at past men's and women's World Cups. Jen is also in her second year as an executive board member of SASH. Declan Abernathy, our second guest, is a PhD candidate in the history and sociology of technology and science at the Georgia Institute of Technology. A native of Florida and a graduate of Cornell University, Declan is working on a dissertation titled Grass Ceiling, the United States Women's National Team, Politics, and the Making of 21st Century Icons. First of all, I want to say thank you to both of you for joining us from down under today on a morning where you're finally able to get some rest and come up for some air after um, quite a lot of action over the past couple days. Um, really great to have you both here. And I'd like to just start off by opening the floor to each of you to um, speak for a moment about your general experiences during this World Cup. When did you get down there? Um, how, um, you know, what specifically have you been doing during the World Cup and, and what has your experience been like? So I arrived maybe five days before the tournament started. Um, I've been in Sydney the whole time. That's where our Fox set is, which everyone based in the U.S. Has, has seen. They have two sets. They have a big stage and then an outdoor set. And we're on um, on the circular key on Campbell's Cove. And it's it's a really great location. It's a historic location and um, just a really great place to be. Um, we're actually staying in the neighborhood right there. It's called The Rocks. And I've, I've been to Sydney twice before, but a long time ago. It's the best place to stay in terms of everything's right here. It's a historic neighborhood, cafes to walk around to. Just like, and even though it's Sydney's winter, it's, it's, it's mild. Right. So it's been a really pleasant experience as as a visitor. Uh, once the tournament started, of course, it's been every day that, uh, you know, I'm on set. Uh, if the games are going, if they're on TV, you know, we are, um, you know, me and two other researchers were supporting anybody that's that's on air or anybody that's that's doing graphics. Um, there's many other people doing that kind of support uh, also from the U.S. or, or, or prepping game notes. Um, but our specific responsibility is the talent so that if they need uh, a reminder of how something's pronounced or, hey, how many shots did that player have in the last game? Or is this her 10th or 11th World Cup goal? Uh, you know, and then as the games are progressing, anything that's like... Um, Hey, you know, well, like last night, well, last night for us, but, uh, you know, that was France's bi biggest win ever in a knockout stage game. Right. And we were one goal away from matching the all time goal record in a World Cup, which, of course, will happen once we get to the next game. So it's it's a pretty steady flow of just keeping on top of games, keeping on top of stats. Um, but thankfully, now we got to the part where, all right, we get some off days. You know, so then we'll have the quarterfinals, some off days, semis, some off days. And of course, with the the exit of the U.S., that just does change the flavor of things on, uh, you know, on our schedule a lot in terms of what Fox has planned and not planned. But, you know, I, having been through 2018 where we didn't have USA at all in Russia uh, and then last fall where, hey, you know, you know, they're probably not going to make it the whole way. It's, you know, there's there's plans for that. Well, definitely. We'll talk more specifically about, you know, what all has gone down with the U.S. women's national team soon enough. But thank you for filling us in. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do behind the scenes, because I know that all of us here have been appreciating um, having such great coverage throughout the tournament. Um, 
I'd also like to ask you the same question, Declan. Um, how has your experience been down at the uh, at the World Cup? Yeah, thanks, uh, Ken. It's nice to see everyone. Um, sort of different than Jen. Uh, obviously, I'm a grad student. Um, I'm not at the Fox Studio. Um, I actually went on a bike tour yesterday and biked by Campbell's Cove. It's really nice down there. Pretty jealous that you get to stay in the historic area. Um, I came down here... Um, before the second U.S. group stage game against Netherlands. So flew from Atlanta to Wellington, which was um, a long, long travel. Um, and I saw the U.S. play there. I saw them in Auckland, was able to snag a ticket to the match um, in Melbourne, and then um, also saw Australia play two nights ago here in Sydney. Um, so for me, this has been... Um, a project to obviously see the team in person, um, meet some really great people. So I attended um, sort of like a panel in Wellington. It was called Equalize, where I saw Becca Rue, who's the um, U.S. Women's National Team Player Association executive director talk um, sort of about her experiences, was able to get her contact info. Also, um, coincidentally, saw Joy Fawcett there in the audience. She was just the uh, just walked in. I don't think many people um, recognize her when she's, you know, not on stage. So it was nice to see her and her husband. Um, but for me, I was really interested in seeing how this tournament was received here. You know, how FIFA has changed the way that they've approached hosting the organization. Obviously, we all know about the the struggle to get them to invest resources and infrastructure over time. Um, so I've been going to the fan zones in every city. Um, watching matches with other fans, having conversations, um, and obviously going to the matches. Um, and it's been um, a pretty steady stream. Um, unlike Jen, I'm, I was more focused on the U.S., and so that gave me a little bit more flexibility. Also, not every day you get to come down to New Zealand and Australia, so trying to make the most of my travel here. Um, I have some very distant relatives that live in Melbourne, so it was nice to spend time with them. They... Um, and to be able to talk with them about the way that the tournament is sort of received by Australians because sort of a big conversation point for a lot of people down here is the way it's been televised. Um, and that maybe that's something that we can talk more about is television rights and the impact on um, sort of accessibility because for them, they don't have, it's on one of their sort of like over the top paid packages. It's not on the, most of the games aren't on national TV regularly. And for them, that meant that they weren't paying to watch games, so less access. But at the same time, one of the first tournaments that they've really ever watched as sort of non-soccer fans. Um, but it's been really nice to be down here. And um, I went to the Fan Village yesterday in Sydney, and they have a the FIFA Museum. Uh, I'm sure you've been there, Jen. It's um, cool. it, it's really cool. Um, they've got some really great memorabilia, some interesting sort of. Um, 20th century information that I hadn't really seen um, FIFA push elsewhere. Um, they, they had the 91 through 95 World Cup trophy, things like that. Um, so it's been just a really uh, a nice trip and some really great atmospheres. Very stressful, like Jen was saying, in the, in the runoff, the countdown. Melbourne was, um, I was, I mean, I was losing my mind and I wasn't on the field. So I just can't imagine what it was like for the players in that situation. Um, but happy to talk more. Uh, any questions that you might have? Certainly. Well, I do want to get the, um, you know, the elephant in the room, I guess I should say, is the, you know, we we decided to have this session immediately after the U.S. women's national team dropped out of the tournament. Certainly we weren't expecting that when we scheduled it. Um, but, you know, I, I think we've seen... Um, it, it certainly hasn't been a walkover, you know, over the past several tournaments for the United States by any means. Um, so is this just a matter of the, do you think, both of you, that this is more a matter of the world catching up or that this is the end of an era or is there some mitigating factor that's standing in the way? Um, what happened, I guess? Declan, do you want to start with that or you want me to go? Um, I'm happy to happy to talk. I, I've been thinking about this a lot, as I'm sure most everybody here has as well. Um, I think that the world catching up 
narrative is a little exaggerated. I think the world has been developing talent for a long time. Obviously, the U.S. going out was sort of down to a millimeter variability, maybe um, you know, technological um, room for error could be a question there. Um, so, you know, on the on the night, I think it was probably the best U.S. performance that we've seen. Um, they looked a lot more fluid. Couldn't get a goal scored, so I think a, a part of the inability to to win the match was um, a tactical decision by Blacko. And um, personally, I disagree with the approach of always trying to cross the ball and score goals via that way. Um, that could be a different conversation. Um, sort of in general, I think we've seen really uh, sustained progress in the women's game, more infrastructure across the world. Obviously, the UF system isn't necessarily the best at developing um, players to win World Cups. And I, I started writing a newsletter recently, and I was thinking a lot about how the U.S. system is actually not necessarily designed to, to win World Cups, but to, to get young women and girls into colleges, right? So, you know, the U.S. development system tied to Title IX, I think some other things as well, including a Supreme Court decision, but all through our youth development system, the goal is to get girls in college. And so that system isn't necessarily the best system for winning World Cups. And I think we're seeing that now. I also think, um, you know, talking about Waco's tactical decisions, that we're seeing improvements in global coaching in the women's game, better tactical decisions, better competition there, right? Because if the players' technical abilities are, are narrowing, right, the coaching... Um, decisions and approaches are going to be where we're going to see some of those differences. I mean, being in a stadium against Portugal, you could really see, I, th I don't think anybody would argue that Portugal has better technical ability than the U.S., but they had a very clear game plan. Same thing with Japan. I mean, they have very talented players. We've seen them go against Spain using that sort of 5-4-1 at the block. The block, you know, completely stifled them. And their organization and their tactical ideas were very clear, very effective, and very flexible. Um, and so I think the evolution is tied in a, a lot of different areas, but I think sustained focus and infrastructure has um, maybe not necessarily um, allowed the world to... I, I think the narrative that the world has caught up is a little bit more complicated, right? As historians, we can, we can find roots and causes in different places than just, oh, the talent is now better. And that's, that's the only answer. Definitely um, agree with all of that, Declan. There, there's so many layers uh, to to what you know gets distilled into us going out in the round of 16. But um, I'll, I'll start with this note that I found in my research a few days ago. So 20 years ago this summer is when FIFA released its first women's rankings. Um, the top four teams in those original rankings, two of them didn't make it out of the group stage this time. And the other two got knocked off in the round of 16. Um, that, that That's a really easy way to show how the women's game has changed. But it, it, it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, for me, one of the biggest developments, especially in the last cycle since 2019, is how we're finally seeing, um, let's call them soccer countries in a way that U.S. is not a soccer country, have finally leaned into the women's game, whether it's investment with their national team, investment um in a league on a league level you know or other kind of developments uh with the expansion of the women's world cup to 32 teams my original thought was oh, it's too early we're going to have some really crazy lopsided matches um but i'm happy to say that i was mostly wrong and what it really did was open up a lot of let's say checkbooks <laughs> by federations going hey we actually have a legit shot to make this. Let's let's invest in this, right? Uh, whether it was a country like Portugal or some of the other European countries, um, but also like Philippines. Philippines hired a legit former national team coach and played regularly for a long time. Um, you know, you go back to just 2015 and you had teams like Nigeria that were the African champion still coming into the tournament having barely played arriving just before the tournament starts and wearing generic uniforms you know um i'm sure declan has seen this at all of the the fan stores but i was so impressed with 
the range of merchandise that FIFA has. Every team, all 32 teams, there's a lot of merch. You're seeing what the teams are wearing. And I know this is a tiny like visual thing, but it shows the investment that they have these sponsors. They're not just getting jerseys. They're doing the warm-up kits and the polos and, and all that stuff. But back to the, the game itself, um, there's a great report that Tony DeChico wrote in 2008. And if anybody wants a copy, I am happy to to send it out. And I, and I put an excerpt on it on my on my Twitter feed a few days ago. He wrote this at the end of 2008 after he had just helped the U-20 women win the U-20 Women's World Cup. And that team included Alex Morgan, Sydney LaRue, Alyssa Nair. Um, that was also the same year that the U.S. women won uh, the Olympics uh, in extra time against Brazil. And the U-17 women in the very first U-17 Women's World Cup finished second. And he made a point in his report of saying, do not mistake this success for um, developmental progress. He had a whole list of, here are all the skills that our players don't have. Here are all the challenges that we faced against all these foreign teams. Um, and if we don't start making changes, it's, you know, it's not going to change. And his biggest point was, we cannot forget that the pool for women's soccer tends to be upper middle class. Only that. Um you know, we see this on the men's side, but it's even more exaggerated on the women's side. Um, it's, you know, these are not people growing up kicking the ball on the street. Um, if you do not have funds, you are likely not getting seen, um, not just for college scholarship, but but you're not being identified by U.S. soccer, right? Um, I do think one of the things that has changed since he put out that report is that there is much more soccer on TV to watch. And I think we're slowly getting youth players to watch, right? So that so that they have soccer brains. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to take you all the way to the final to be stronger um, and have better mentality if you don't have the technical skills. And we, all of us still, we have, you know, did not grow up in a soccer culture. It's even with the the growth of MLS and how much more soccer there is on TV and how much more people are aware of it, it's not, you know, it we're, we're not a culture where every person is analyzing the game and kicking the ball around and, and knows all those things. So I, I do feel like this upset for the U.S. women is, is a couple cycles too late. Um, I remember very clearly watching 2015 how horribly... U.S. women played in the group stage and they were almost eliminated by Colombia in the round of 16 until the Colombian keeper got a red card and that changed the whole game, right? And where there were two players in that match that got second yellows, uh, Lauren Chaney, Lauren Holiday, and uh, Megan Rapino. So that forced Jill Ellis to change the lineup. She changed the lineup. What happened? Carly Lloyd goes on a six-goal scoring spree, Right. And you remember the final. You don't remember the buildup to it, right? So, so they, I feel like they escaped the the window of hey, we need to analyze. At 2019, you had a lot of that same crew. Jill had a full cycle to develop um, players, and you were still in the window. I think this is the most important part. You were still in the window of U.S. players were under contract with U.S. soccer. The U.S. Women's National Team was basically a club team. They could be called up by U.S. Soccer whenever U.S. Soccer wanted them because their contracts were with the U.S. Soccer. Clubs did not have a choice of whether or not those players were taken away. That's gone. We're in the second or third year, third year of NWSL. If, if you have a U.S. Soccer player on your team, you are paying her. Her, con her contract is no longer with U.S. Soccer. So we are finally in a system that the rest of the world follows, where U.S. Soccer no longer has the luxury of, I can call in these players whenever we want, and we have the benefit of extra training time, and we're just going to take this pool of 25 players and play with them all the time. I, I remember a game, a friendly U.S. versus Thailand several years ago, not, not the World Cup one. Julie Foudy on the broadcast saying, it's amazing. Thailand played so well, and they only have a player pool of like 25 people. And I was thinking, so do we. We have a player pool of 25 people. 
Um, so that's a lot of that's a lot of information there, but uh, there's so many levels to the issues here, and I think a lot of it comes down to uh, the pay-to-play model. Uh, like like Declan said, like you know, it, our our model is about uh, getting girls to to play in college, which was a great thing when the women's World Cup started. It gave us an early edge, but but that edge is gone. And I agree with saying the world is caught up isn't the right narrative. Um, I would say the landscape has changed considerably in terms of the traditional soccer countries are finally investing in women's soccer. Both made some really salient points there. And I really appreciate that both of you acknowledge that you can't really just pin it on one. Yes, please. Yeah, I just wanted to piggyback on what Jen was saying there, too. Um, about Tony DeChico, I was at the DeChico collection up at Springfield College, which is his family donated his, his old material doing research on the 90s. And I saw the report that, um, that Jen mentioned, but also from the moment that Tony took over in 1994, he put together a, a report for the Federation and he was saying, look, like our, our players are not technically good enough, right? It, so this is not a new narrative. I mean, it's it's 30 years old. Tony was saying we need to change completely the way that we approach our development landscape. We need to um, create vertically integrated programs. He wanted the ability to appoint all of the ODP um, directors across the country. And I think largely he struggled to get the Federation to change the way that they approach the game because, look, like when he took over, it was working right he, there wasn't that much impetus to change the way that you approach i i really agree with jen because when you're winning just papers over all of the failures um so maybe now we'll see some serious questions being asked but at the same time right when we're looking at the youth development framework we have to ask the question who is this working for right and there's so many people coaches club directors that the pay-to-play model is a really great system for them because they're they're able to survive and you know they're they're not interested in changing it. So I think the change has to come from the top down if they want to you know create a system to to compete with this sort of other sort of more soccer football and nations. Yeah, definitely. And you know now the big question is is do we actually see that kind of top down movement after you know the result that happened on the pitch? Um, I have so many other questions I could ask you both, but I would love to throw this out to the the crowd because I think it's such a, a treat to be able to have a couple of people who are actually kind of embedded in, you know, everything that's happening on the scene. So um, feel free. You can um, raise a hand um, or you can throw a question in the chat if you'd prefer to ask that way. But I'll just open the floor now. Yes. Please, like. Great. Um, my question is, you know, being from St. Louis, um, how much of a ripple effect did losing Becky Sauerbrunn hurt the U.S. Not just as the starting center back, but as the captain of the team? I would, I would say, that's that's a sliver of of the problem with this specific performance um, that you did lose uh, someone who was such a natural leader and a longtime leader of this team. Um, I think, well, I, I really wonder if she'd been available, would we have been able to see Julie Ertz move up into the sixth role, um, be more of the disruptor, um, and that could have, you know, daisy chain fixed, uh, perhaps created more more offense. I don't think that was the only problem, right? Um, but, I, but I do think that's, that, that's, that's a small part of it. But that does also speak to wait a minute, you know, we're so reliant on a pair of 38-year-olds right. to have, to have you know, the best possible tournament. Um, one of the things I found really strange with some of the lineup choices is, you know, Naomi Gurma and Alana Cook played together at Stanford, won a national championship at Stanford. Um, they've both had regular rotation in the lineup for the last year and a half. We saw a lot of Naomi Gurma. We didn't see a second of Alana Cook. Like, wait, like you have no faith in that player at all. Like, you know that, 
and and similarly we didn't see Ashley Sanchez at all uh, a, a player who's had a lot of creativity a lot of great moments and I feel like when you're struggling offensively it's like you got to mix it up so uh, I'm someone who's always been a very big Vlako Nanovsky supporter especially for what I've seen him do on the club level um, this these choices really perplex me yeah, and just to piggyback off that again, I I, I think um, you know it's a it's a great point to think about. Maybe we see Ertz in that sort of double pivot, double six that we saw in the last game instead of Emily Sonnet, who you know I think Sonnet did a really nice job. Some people didn't like her in there, but she was she was really organized. She was really she was she was great, but she's not a natural there, and you could see it. I think in her inability or unwillingness to take players on, or even drive a little bit into the space to make defenders commit. But another injury that I think has an equal impact as Sauerbrunn there too is, you know, Abby Dahlkemper. Right, she's a stalwart of 2019. Her back injuries kept her out. I was listening to the um, the Kristen Press Tib and Heath uh, podcast, the recap show, and Dahlkemper was on there and. They're talking about the importance of her long balls, right, in, in 2019. And I'm not a fan of the long ball, kick it to her aunt's head every time, but she's probably, you know, one of the best in the U.S. set up at doing that. And so there's a knock-on effect, whether it's Sauerbrunn or Dahlkemper. Um, you know, you're Ertz in the back line. I mean, they were great, right? Like, they, they only allowed a couple of shots in the whole tournament. But at the same time, it was at the cost of a functional midfield. <laughs> Well, and then you also think about not having Katarina Macario, uh, Mallory Swanson, um, you know, and obviously, you know, Press and Heath were both injured, though they, I think. Oh my, did we just have Jen freeze on us? Hopefully she'll be right back with us soon. But while we're waiting um, for Jen to come back, I'll throw out right back to the group um, any other questions that we have. Yes, Chuck. A question for Declan, and I also have a question for Jen, but I'll, I'll save it to Declan on TV. I'm seeing that there seems to be bigger crowds in Australia than there are in New Zealand. How would you compare the two countries' uh, reception of the the Women's World Cup so far? Yeah, that's a great question, Chuck. Um, the games that I went to were seemingly sold out. Um, I, I didn't think that there was a noticeable difference i know that in the game against the netherlands at wellington it might have seemed on tv like the crowd wasn't full i think a part of that was the first two rows they leave empty there because of the benches block the view so then that's what you're seeing a lot on the on the cameras um and there was another section in one of the um sort of behind one of the goals um that was a little bit more empty i I've been being here trying to buy tickets that I didn't have originally is like impossible, right? I had to have my my partner at home buy my tickets because our internet there is fast enough to like snag them. I mean, no matter where you're trying to get them, um, the New Zealand stadiums. So Wellington, I think maybe held maybe like twenty seven thousand, twenty five thousand, and then Auckland about forty five thousand. The atmosphere and and the and the attendances were really excellent. I think. This is the first time that I've had a chance to see the women's national team in person because being in Atlanta, they don't really play on the turf field, which is which is great, right? But they don't come to Atlanta often. Um, probably the most tense like atmosphere, right? Not a lot of cheering from from the fans. Rather, like everyone is dialed in, and they went by really quickly. Um, there was some cheering. The outlaws were there. They had their drums, things like that. Um, Australia, I, I would say uh, Melbourne actually has a similar capacity to Wellington, um, a bit higher of a stadium, equally um, sold out. Um, a lot of the Australians there as well as neutrals. Um, they were, I was getting frustrated as the game progressed against Sweden, the Australians became increasingly Swedish, it appeared. Uh, they were they were rooting more and more for Sweden as the game went on. Um, but I mean, surprising or not, a shocking number of American fans have made the trip down here. Not an easy trip, not a cheap trip. But I mean, maybe that speaks to the demographic that support the women's national team. But I mean, we're talking like tens of thousands of American fans everywhere. And when I went to um, 
Australia, Denmark the other night. I think maybe there were 500 Danish people in the crowd at uh, Stadium Australia, which had more than 75,000 fans. Um, and and the Australians were, they were dialed in. I mean, that was a really rowdy environment, much rowdier than the others. They they have a, a sort of, like their, their, their cheer is that somebody will always go Aussie, 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 and then they return it with oi, oi, oi. I don't know if you can hear that on TV, um, but I think it'll be ingrained in my brain for a long time. Um, and very diverse crowds, right? I think people have, have focused on that in terms of women's football. Um, you see a lot of families, young children. Um, they even, I'm sure it's the same for a men's World Cup. I haven't had the chance to go to one, but they, they sell a lot of children's tickets that you have to be with an adult. Um, and so, I mean, everywhere that I've been, I've been surrounded by children. And you can't always say the same thing about some of the environments in the men's game as well. And how about outside the stadiums? Did you notice a difference in how people in New Zealand are approaching the tournament as opposed to people in Australia? Um, it's tough because Wellington is a much smaller city than the other places that I, I, I was at. Um, and also, in maybe a good or not so good way, um, the geography of Australia, like the city layouts of really strong suburbs, sprawling cities, right? So you have less density in a lot of places. And the televising thing is a really, I think that's off a lot of places from airing the games, right? So when you have the host countries playing, I mean, total focus on the games, most bars are showing them, um, outside the stadiums in the walk-in, you can see that, you know, all of the restaurants are mobbed with people that are going. Um, but I think, you know, maybe some of the less popular matches become were less attended or, you know, it was harder to watch them in public spaces. Right. Um, I had to use my VPN to watch them on my computer when I wasn't there. Um, but I'm just trying to think just sort of like being around, I mean, the friends are way, you know, they're not as good as the Matildas. Right. And so, um, I've seen a lot more Australians out and about in sort of the Matildas gear. I saw a guy yesterday, um, on my bike tour, he was driving a convertible, it was adorned in Australia Matilda's garb. He had a flag going and he had a, like a little dog sitting in the back with goggles on. Uh, it's like, you know, the most Australian picture you could ever imagine. Just, you know, blasting some 80s uh, rock. Um, so that's not, maybe that doesn't fully answer your question, but it's hard to get a full picture because of like how spread out these countries are. Like the scale of this tournament is mind blowing. It's like Canada in 2015 when you look at the distance from Moncton on the east coast to Vancouver on the west coast, and and that was only using six six venues. And you know, for for reference, think of Australia as the size of the U.S. Right? Because it, it basically is. But then New Zealand is a four hour flight to the east. Um, so I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, you know, this probably could have been just all in Australia. There's there's enough major cities. There's enough good stadiums um but i'm glad that you know new zealand was able to piggyback off of this and kind of get a boost for uh the country women's sports because they're so small they're never going to get to you know host something like this um uh, it does seem to me a little bit better than france 2019 in that the country seems aware that they're hosting this world cup france um you know paris was like eh Leon, it seemed like someone forgot to tell them that they were hosting the semifinals and the final. Um, so, so this has been, I think, a better visitor experience. And and yes, there are a lot of Americans here. Um, FIFA announced that I think it was of all the you know non-host nations, uh, U.S. bought ten times the amount of tickets as the next most tickets sold, and and that that doesn't surprise me. Um, at all, the, the the people that are willing to travel. One of the things we were researching last night during the Columbia game, because you've seen the amazing Columbia crowds, so the question from our producer was, what is the Colombian population in Australia? And it's about 38,000 Colombian-born people living in Australia. And we were like, every single one of them is going to these matches. And there was definitely... 
uh, some Australian coverage of it before the tournament started. These uh, the Colombians saying, "You don't understand. We never get to see our national team play. This is a once in a lifetime experience." Um, and I just I love the way they've leaned into it. And did you have a second question, Chuck? Uh, my my question for Jen, and it's a much more contentious one. I happen to be looking at Twitter right before uh, we got on here. And there's an Alexi Lawless post from his podcast uh, in which Carly Lloyd says, quote unquote, that the um, team has become entitled. Uh, and she uses examples that setting up a massage appointment and not showing up for it, basically treating the staff not as equal partners. Um, and I'm just curious what your take is on sort of the 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 attitude of the team. Are they did they seem entitled compared to things you've seen in the past? So of course, you know, I'm I'm not around the team the way the way that she is. Um and that is something that has concerned me a little bit as someone who on the NWSL side, um working as media that there seems to be this attitude of no nah, this this player's done enough media sorry she's not available um which has always stunned me where it's like yeah then stop giving me this bullshit of women deserve more media coverage because if you're not doing the interviews you're not you're not getting the media coverage um but i think uh that is such a tiny piece of this huge puzzle that I think that's an easy distraction from what's really going on. Um, I I thought it was disingenuous to make a big deal about, oh my God, they're smiling after and they're taking pictures. They clearly don't care. They don't have enough heart. I'm sorry. We saw after that brutal penalty kick shootout how much these players cared about it. Nobody has spent their whole life um, competing to get to this level to get to a World Cup and not care. Um, I do wonder, um, you know, again, kind of coming be- back to Becky Sauerbrunn, it's it's like, you know, she probably would have been a, a better leader for that. Um, I don't think, you know, Rapino was necessarily the right person to set, set the tone for that. Um, I do think that, you know, that is a tiny little problem. And, and I think that is, I think, a natural outgrowth of, hey, in any industry, in any situation, once money comes into play, things change, right? Um, and I also think we're at a very interesting time in terms of the women's game in the U.S. specific to to club with all of the upheaval we've seen in NWSL in the last couple of seasons. Right now, I feel like the pendulum has swung so far to the player's side. Um, it, it needs to kind of come back back to the middle. Um, that some of the complaints we've seen from players of, you know, that coach yelled at me, he should be fired. It's like, what? You know, um, there, there, there's, there's got, there's got to be a middle ground. Now, obviously, Carly can only speak from her experience, and we heard the same thing from her post Olympics. Um, she's, she is always herself. She ain't putting on a show, right? That's just, that's just who she is, and she's speaking to her experience. I just. I wish she had more of a worldview about it um, than just like honing in on this one thing that clearly bugged her, but I don't think is as important as some of the other issues we've discussed. Thank you very much. Sure. Jack has a question, looks like. Muted here. Here. There. That's better. I can talk now. I'm wondering, Jen, you've been with it long enough, whether you see parallel between the fallow period after 99 through to really to 11, when when we were truly competitive again, uh, and in the beginning of this period, do you see any parallels? I mean, that obviously gives us hope that we can fix things that, that go wrong, but I wondered if you have thought about that idea. Well, that's something that Heather O'Reilly talked about uh, on air, and she and I talked about it later. I I, I totally agree with her that these kind of moments um, end up spurring the next generation. Um, and we have, when you think of the young players on this team and what they gained from this tournament, Naomi Gurma played every single minute. You know, Andy Sullivan had, 
you know, a, a, a better game each game in that wonderful, you know, PK. And Rodman's just 21, right? So, and there's a lot of other young talent like that in NWSL. I think about Jaden Shaw, who's 18 and already has a, a year of pro soccer under her belt. Olivia Moultrie, who turns 18 next month, who already has two seasons playing with Portland Thorns. Um, I, I think you can totally take what happened and look back on it as I'm never going to let that happen again. Um, Heather, O'Reilly, Heather O'Reilly mentioned the 2007 4-0 loss to Brazil, which remains the U.S.'s biggest, worst loss ever at a World Cup or an Olympics, right? And she talked about that, how that, that, that really, um, that really spurred them on. And I also and Carla think, talks about the 95 loss to Norway. 95, right, right. And with all of our, oh my God, this was so horrible. We are still one of the best teams in the world, right? Like Germany not making the round of 16. We know they're still a very formidable opponent. Um, but the the margins are, are so much tighter. Um, but there's also one thing that I don't think it's talked about. And, and I know TV, it has to be so simple that, that they can't always get into these nuances. Um, we lost a whole year of development in 2020, right? Everything There's was shut down played. basically March to, to, to late November. So that delayed the Olympics. So not only did you lose that year of development, but that also meant that Blocko was mostly stuck with his older players an additional year. If we didn't have COVID, I would hazard a guess that Carly and Rapino would have retired after the 2020 Olympics, right? Um, so, and you didn't have the Youth World Cups that year. Trinity Rodman, Sophia Smith, Naomi Gurma, they were all on the U-20 team that had qualified for the U-20 World Cup that year, and boom, it gets canceled, right? Um, sure, everybody dealt with that, but I, I feel like in terms of how the U.S. treats development and that we tend to stick with, you know, established players longer than, than most teams, um, that really hurt our developmental cycle. Whereas I look at Spain, they had this amazing team, 15 players, you know, write a pretty pissy letter about the coach. 12 of those 15 are not on this roster and they're still kicking ass, right? That, that um, it used to be, you know, the, the storyline used to always be that, hey, you could put two U.S. teams in the World Cup and, and both would make the semifinal, right? You could put our B team in the World Cup. You know, that's not true anymore. And I'm glad it's not true anymore. But it also tells me that, like, we have not been developing beneath that. Um, another thing that, that gives me hope for the future is seeing that with NWSL hitting its stride and, and getting past that point of will it fold or not, you know, um, we're seeing players like Savannah DeMello, you know, who played her way onto the team. Um, even little things like our third keeper, Aubrey Kingsbury, she played her way onto this team. If this had been a previous cycle, A.D. Franch, who was the previous third keeper, who's been playing like crap all year and lost her starting spot, she still would be on the national team because she would have been contracted to the national team. So, like I said before, the landscape is changing, but in so many positive waves. And I, and I, you know, I, I don't think it will be hard for the U.S. to to get back on top, but just I really hope that some forward thinking long term type decisions are made by US soccer. And next gen and also to add to add to that too, Jack, that I th- there's a big parallel in that period after ninety nine. And I mean, look at the coaching decisions from two thousand to two thousand four at least, right? April Heinrichs was not liked by her players and her tactical decisions were frustrating for them. There's a lot of frustration, you know, now with Flacco, right? So there's a lot of overlap there too. It shows you that these kinds of questions are going to, you know, hang over the program forever like they will with any soccer team. And that 2011, it took that moment, right, with Rapino and Baumbach, like they built and took us into a new era, but they still kind of papered over. Like there wasn't a lot of change, right? They, they, they used Wambach's physical dominance to propel them into this era. So maybe now that you can't rely on physical ability, you can push into a better tactical development system. But 
that's never meant to be seen. I think of those as teams of personality. You you mentioned Abby, and of course Michelle was her predecessor, who was a just a dominating player, and then then Abby that way. And uh, yeah, I don't know that Pop's probably the closest to a player that is like those two in the tournament. And that wasn't enough for Germany. So in that way, yeah, the how you play the game is really changing. Um, I have one question. Um, so we're kind of, I think that is kind of like the big moment for U.S. women. Um, as the U.S. men, 2017, they failed to qualify for the World Cup. Um, and talking about the physical uh, dominance on the field, rather than tactical and technical, very similar uh, similarities for me. Uh, who do you all think would be possibly the, at the moment, the best coach to usher in that new technical, tactical uh, focus for the U.S. women? Well, I was actually, I actually asked Carly this question last night. <laughs> um, her thought was, she didn't have a specific name so much as she wants it to be someone who is outside the program. So not taking a current assistant or a U20 coach, uh, but going fresh so that you are kind of cutting all of those. Well, this is how it always was kind of ties. Um, more specifically, I I'd be surprised if U.S. soccer doesn't at least consider Laura Harvey, even though she she was Vlaco's assistant for the Olympics. Uh, and she was that U-20 coach that that led Smith and Germa and Rodman to the CONCACAF U-20 title. Um, I'm sure she'll get consideration, but I hope they think bigger and bolder. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't love to have Serena Wiegmann? She's under contract through at least 2025 with England, so I don't see her leaving. Uh, but I feel like along with all the other developments all the changes that we've seen in the women's soccer landscape, there's a lot of more better coaching changes uh, out there options than, than there used to be, uh, especially looking at this World Cup. Um, more people with high licenses that are focusing in women's soccer. Um, and I kid you not, I know from behind the scenes that Phil Neville has already reached out to ask about the U.S. women's program, which I think would be a horrible, horrible choice. But I love, but I love that the interest, like you know, the interest is there because when you think about it, it's the best job and the worst job in women's soccer. You were taking on the number one ranked team, right? Um, at least they wouldn't be like Blacko, where you're taking on the number one team right after they've won back-to-back -back World Cups, you know. But yeah, you're 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 inheriting uh, uh, a lot of responsibilities and ex expectations. Um, but that's one of the things that I have appreciated with you know how tough this this World Cup has been for the women's World Cup, for the women's team. That all the chatter is about tactics, players we didn't have, players that didn't perform well. I don't agree with the coach. The coach should be fired. Um, because what's frustrated me since the beginning of me watching women's soccer, which is basically the 96 Olympics, is the the little girl storyline. And then that's that's a part of the story, but that is not the whole story. Um, you know, this is adult entertainment, you know, so I'm so glad that it's that it's you can tell how serious people are taking it because they're calling for the coaches to be fired and and. I think for the first time for all teams, we're at the point where you're going to see coaches fired. We've already seen some fired for their teams not doing well, as opposed to historically, we've seen some coach, some coaches be in charge for 15 plus years, regardless of how a team performed. Because like uh, uh, Leo Cuellar was head coach of the Mexico women's team 20 years, right? You know, so it, it's being taken seriously. You you still have in women's college soccer, there are coaches that can go many years with the losing season and not be replaced because for for the university, it's you know they're they're just they have a soccer team. They're not worried about you know the bigger stuff. So I'm glad it's being taken seriously and that people are, you know, 
move, move it along, which means that there's a bigger pool, slowly more and more competition for, hey, you know, good coaches out there. Michelle Akers on an interview on After the Whistle said, we need a coach with an edge. I like that. It's a good way to say it. So it looks like Peter has a question. Indeed, yes. Peter, please. Uh, yeah, I watched uh, most of the tournament uh, in Italy and uh, I followed the international sort of take on this tournament quite a bit. And I was struck by how many folks who are invested in women's football are actually quite pleased about the USA crashing out so early. Uh, and I was curious, given the audience on this call, uh, how people feel about the fact that this kind of anti-Americanism uh, blended with some other things that have led to this. What's your reaction to the fact that the world seems pretty happy that the U.S. is out? I don't mind the world being happy that the U.S. is out. I have issue with some Americans um, kind of, you know, stomping on the grave, but that's that's a whole political discussion. But hey, when you put when you when you put out an ad, you know, like like they put out, uh, and and I know they don't necessarily get to choose that, right? That's that's the advertiser. Um, but hey, when you set yourself up as we've got the target on our back, and you're taken down, all all the people shooting at you are 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 going to celebrate, right? And it just, I. I would like us to move on from the U.S. versus the world um, and just get into, hey, this is it's a World Cup. It's not one team. It's all the teams. Um, this for either Jen uh, or Declan. Uh, your thoughts on the impact of uh, UFL uh, Super League over the next four years and projecting forward, and not just for the U.S. national team, but for... Uh, global soccer and international stars coming in. It's going to be Division One. Do you imagine that it's going to have an impact and have national team quality players? I don't think it will at first, but I think it's going to have a big impact long term. Um, one, it's going to give competition to NWSL, right? Even though it's going to run a fall to spring season, whereas NWSL runs a spring to fall season. Um, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, to date myself to USFL in the early eighties, late seventies, and what it did to NFL in terms of, um, it forced the NFL to make some changes for the better. Um, I definitely think there's enough talent out there and I think it will affect the game globally because as we've already seen what there's over 50 players in this world cup. Who are American-born? Uh, I think it's over a hundred players, maybe even more, that have played college soccer in the U.S. Um, so, hey, maybe there's a league that really helps your Caribbean nations uh, or the 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 second tier of Canadian players or 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 whatever, right? But I also feel like it gives a better place to those American players that maybe they just missed out on getting drafted in NWSL or you know, um, got cut from a team, but here's a place to go and get paid in a professional environment and, and keep your, your pro career alive. And the more players that are playing year round at a high level, the better our pool is. Thank you very much. Completely. Yeah. I completely agree too with you, Jen. And I, just to add to it, you know, the number of opportunities for the players is important. It also gives more coaches the ability to coach at a professional level. Right. And so, one of the things I think going back to what Arrow asked, right, is like, what do the coaching pathways look like for people who are interested in the women's game? I want to someday coach at a high level. I'm working on my licenses now. And it's really difficult because, you know, only a handful of the NWSL teams have um, academies, right? One of my friends just went to to racing Louisville. I mean, you look in, in Europe and that's a, a tried and true pathway. If you want to progress up, like you coach older and older age groups in a club, maybe you get a professional job. And so, you know, maybe these new super league teams can give more people opportunities outside the college environment who, you know, college has been a way for women's players to keep playing as they've gotten older, but, you know, maybe they don't want to go to college and it's not necessarily the professional environment that they're looking after. So I think more opportunities are better, especially 
if those opportunities, you know, if this league can be professional, have facilities that respect the players, give them even if it's a small living wage, right? Hopefully they don't replicate the the same struggles as the NWSL, but I think any number of more professional opportunities for the women's game raises the level across the world and creates more opportunities. Great and, point. And yeah, to, to add to the, the coaching point, that also means more opportunities for goalkeeper specific coaches, more opportunities for your strength and conditioning coaches for your medical trainers. Um, you know, just in the first decade of NDBSL, I've seen such an incredible improvement in the support staffs for the teams. Um, NDBSL started so quickly and on such a shoestring budget, it was pretty rough the, the early years. So to see that not only in NWSL, but I but I feel like watching this World Cup and, and seeing the support staff on the team, it's a it's it's a much higher level. And even with all of the struggles that we've seen, right, like the Nigerian players not getting paid and South African players boycotting a match in Jamaica um, having their struggles in Haiti. Oh, my God, what Haiti has been able to do without, you know, um, but they're still having more resources and more people coming to their aid than what we would have seen 10 years ago. Yeah, that that reminds me too that one of my big takeaways from the match at Melbourne and being in the stadium was that Philip Poole, I think that's his name, he's the US goalkeeper coach. Uh correct me if I'm wrong there too, Jen. Um no, that's... this I don't I don't think this was televised at all. Maybe it was, but he correctly called Every single Swedish penalty, the direction, the, the height, he told Nair. He had a clipboard in his hand. He went left or right, high or low, and he knew all of them, right? And so, in and and the fourth the fourth official was getting really mad at him because he was like, you know, wildly waving it, just you know, enough so that Nair could see it. Yeah. She, you know, she she saved one and a half. The second to last yeah. penalty. She ignored Poole's direction, so he called her right. She went, so she, it would have been to her right. She'd have left, but I mean, how important is it? He, Phil Poole, could have kept the the U.S. in the in the in the World Cup by yeah, that scouting, was, and that he was able to scout that because you go right. back just a cycle or more, you wouldn't have been able to get video of any of those games. And and now that stuff is more widely available. That's that's why I think we're we're going to see um better uh better awards voting as silly, silly as that sound that um you can see most of the players you're voting on. I re- I remember the early years of the FIFA, you know, Women's Player of the Year Ballon d'Or depending on the year what they were calling it. I, I remember seeing people vote for Michelle Akers after she had retired. Right, because they just didn't know <laughs> women's women's players. So, um, yeah, it's little details like that. And and I have to add, I I did confirm this. Um, a listener, first ever goalkeeper, male or female, to take and convert a penalty kick in a World Cup penalty shootout. So history made, Lissa. I love when we get those little historical moments like that. For sure, it's crazy. It was crazy. Well, and the way that uh, we were talking about this at the research desk, the way that the refs signaled that the game was over, we were all thinking this meant no good. But that actually meant that apparently is the signal for game over. So you see the Swedish players celebrate like, wait, what just what just happened? Because I, I thought about it in any other penalty shootout I've watched. Well, I know the moment the game is over, so I've never needed to know what the ref signal is. But that, that was very strange. I, I feel like that should have been a moment where she comes on the headset and said, goal line technology says, you know, but that, that was bizarre. Yeah, I think that speaks to just one of those as technology gets more prevalent within the game. And we've seen it with, you know, EAR, everybody's favorite three letters, right? Um how much do you think technology is going to be remembered as um, playing a significant, a significant factor in this year's World Cup, say, looking 10, 20, 30 from now? Well, I think that that moment will be, you know, the moment that always gets gets referred to is that that image of the ball looking like perhaps there's 
a millimeter between the ball and the line, you know. Um, I do feel like VAR worked much better this World Cup relative to 2019, where they introduced it at the last minute and no player had ever played with it. Where now you have a lot player, a lot of players that are more used to it. This was the first season that Andy Purcell had VAR, um, so it seems like it seems like it's getting smoother. Um, one of the things we we haven't talked about, which VAR made me think of, is this is the first women's World Cup, like the men's in de- December, to have five subs. Right. So we think about that, that how it seems like the U.S. didn't take advantage of that. Right. But um, and and I know that there was discussion about uh, having 26 players, 26 player rosters for the World Cup, like the men's. And they ultimately decided against it because it wasn't favorably received in Qatar. And this isn't a compressed schedule in the middle of a season. That that was the reasoning for for the men to have the extra three and yeah and I don't think that made a difference but it would be interesting to go back after the tournament and see you know instances where people used every sub compared to not yeah certainly because like you talked about there were certainly players who never came off the bench at all for the United States where um earlier in our talk you mentioned you know when you have a 25 player pool, are you even using those whole, you know, all 25 of those players becomes a really interesting question as well. Anybody else? Any other questions that you'd like to ask of either Jen or Declan? Well, given we've gone over an hour, I want to post just one final question to you, you both. Um, You know, the United States notwithstanding, we've seen a lot of, you know, amazing um, storylines throughout this tournament and having been there on site I, I just am curious what stories do you think will be most well remembered you know 20 years down the line what are historians going to remember most about this tournament I want to let Declan start with that one being the being the yeah. PhD guy I really like what what Jen said at least in terms of thinking about my own work in the American story here that, you know, this is the first world cup in a long time, maybe ever that we weren't questioning the sort of like inherent quality of the team. We weren't questioning the pay. We weren't questioning, like they weren't in huge political battles with uh, elected officials. Right. And so I think what Jen said about this being like a serious professional game for players and for consumers like this might be uh the turning point for that right and i and i think um sort of thinking about the global question too right the expansion of of the tournament and not only its expansion but the the performances of teams that we wouldn't have expected to do well i think lends itself to sort of uh, soccer historians can we think about the way that this game has expanded and grown across the country. I, I would love to work on that more or across the world. Rather. Um, I would love to work on that more. Think about those questions, right? You know, does Australia having hundreds of thousands of fans able to see these games mean that there are more girls playing soccer here? Right. And so while I think the U S women's soccer story has sort of evolved and matured and hit a stasis, I think we've we're starting to see this clock in other places in terms of the social role of women's soccer and the way that it can develop and change, and the U.S. can now sort of be a, a leader and and sort of um, I wouldn't call them a guiding light, but right like even since I'm thinking about 2015, like with the the turf wars, right? This was a an, an international coalition of players playing across the world. This is a story that hopefully can sort of um, continue to be a positive uh, relationship with sort of women's advancement and equality across the world, not just in the United States. And I'm eager to see how this World Cup continues to impact those those places in the future. Well, and I'm so excited about um, a lot of the young players who have burst onto the scene, like uh, Bon Mati or uh, Linda Casero for, for Colombia, um, you know, Buddy Shaw getting so much more attention than it, than in 2019. Um, 
you know, you're you're building stars and you're building stars of the women's game that aren't necessarily American. And and I do like that it seems like a lot of the other national teams do credit the U.S. for, you know, helping them fight the fight. Right. You, you know, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're the guiding light. Declan, you know, you're trying to find another word. I, I would say they were the trailblazers in terms of fighting for, yeah. you know, let's let's get this contract and, you know, let's negotiate this. And that they do seem very interested in helping each other, much like in 2015, that you had many players from different countries um, complaining about about the turf fields. Um, and I'm intrigued to see what happens with 2027. A, a little annoyed that, you know, that hasn't already been decided where it's going to be, right? This is where you still have FIFA treating the women's game as, as, as an afterthought. Um, but I, I really hope it does go back to Europe. Um, as much as FIFA likes to use the World Cup men and women's to develop the game, I think at a certain point you hurt the women's game by forcing it into a country that doesn't have the infrastructure yet. Uh, you know, there was talk about having this one, you know, in Colombia. Um, it would have been a completely different experience. I, I, I think of, you know, the 2016 Olympics being in Rio, but mostly the entirety of Brazil for the soccer tournament, right? So it's kind of just not 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 the same thing. Um, my fantasy for 2027 is that it would be in Morocco, which has just been another great story. And it's in the right time zone for TV. It's so close to Europe. You know, it's not a huge country, so you could get around everything. So 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 that's my thought going forward is, um, you know, let's not lose this momentum. Um, it was during the U.S. game that they set a new attendance record all time for the Women's World Cup. It, it beat. So the total attendance so far uh, has already beaten the uh, Canada record set in 2015. But what FIFA never likes to tell you is that that 2015 number, they basically uh, it was almost all double headers. So whatever the attendance was, they doubled that number. Right. Oh. So these are actually all standalone games every single game is a standalone game even with the amazing attendance in 99 which still probably has the highest average and of course that that 90k at the rose bowl um all of those except the two semifinals were world cup double headers even the semifinals were double headers they were just double headers with with mls so i love that we finally got into france every game was a standalone game this every game is a standalone game and and that's that's the kind of progress that doesn't get a light shined on it, but is crucial to looking at the numbers of, you know, these are real numbers and these are all individual games. And even when it was a matchup that's not a big name matchup, people were clearly attending. Yeah, I think that's a point we can't overlook at all. Well, I think on that note, unless anybody has any final words, thank you so much, both uh, to Jen and Declan. Uh, let's all give them a hand. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk with both of you um, there on site. And I hope you all, you both get to have a little bit of rest before you dive <laughs> uh, into the chaos for sure. Um, but yes, and thank you to all of you for attending. Um, we'll be, uh, we always love to hold these regular sash events it was a pleasure to get to hold a special session here on a tuesday evening but always do keep an eye out for our first friday sessions and all of the other offerings we have through the society for american soccer history 